0: Hello everyone, this is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. One thing that's certain today is that workplaces around the globe do not function as they should. Repeated studies show that people are unhappy, unhealthy, and poorly engaged in their jobs. And while there was a time when most of us believed none of that really mattered to the success of an organization, today we have clear proof that it does. A couple of years ago, I got the first sign that business schools across the United States were coming to realize that they were part of the problem. For an article that I wrote for Fast Company Magazine, I interviewed Wharton Business School Professor G. Richard Schell, who openly admitted that elite MBA programs like Wharton's had gotten way off track. By overemphasizing analytics in their curriculum, he told me they were failing and had failed to teach future leaders how to successfully manage other human beings. But Shell was chosen to fully reinvent Wharton's coursework. And he went on to ensure that today's MBA students graduate with a far deeper understanding of human motivation and how to inspire a 21st century workforce. Now, what's remarkable to me is how fast other top B schools have been in following Wharton's lead. And also quite stunning is how the tenor at these schools is swiftly moving away from a win-at-all-cost mentality to one that really emphasizes doing good in the world. And at their core, more and more schools are trying to teach students how to operate businesses in sustainable ways that improve society rather than in ways that exploit it. At Yale School of Management, for example, every MBA student takes a class on purpose. And at Harvard, one of the most popular elective courses teaches leadership lessons from ancient Chinese philosophers. Many business schools are now on this very same path. And at Stanford University's Graduate School of Business today, one of the most popular elective classes is called Leading with Mindfulness and Compassion and the person who teaches the class, Professor Leah Weiss, is our guest today on the podcast. Now, if you're like me, you're really curious about what's driving the big changes we're seeing in MBA programs. What was it that schools themselves discovered wasn't working, and how is it that classes on compassion and empathy and purpose and happiness and mindfulness are now widely seen as being the antidote to the engagement crisis that we face all over the world? So I'm really excited to get answers to questions like this from Leah, who, by the way, has a rather unusual educational background for someone teaching at a top business school. She earned her B.A. in history at Stanford before getting a master's in social work from Boston College, and then she earned her Ph.D. in theology and education at Boston College before landing back at Stanford. And she's just published her first book. It's called How We Work Live Your Purpose, Reclaim Your Sanity, and Embrace the Daily Grind. And with that, I welcome you to the podcast. Leah Weiss.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, I'm thrilled that you're here. And as I alluded to your introduction, Leah, if most of us were asked to name all the classes being taught at a top MBA program, we'd come up with a long list of what I think are left brain focused courses like advanced calculus and statistics and quantitative analysis and even blockchain. So to get things started, take us through how a class on leading with mindfulness would ever get taught at Stanford. And what need are you trying to fill?
1: Yeah, I think that one of the important things to keep in mind about leadership in business schools is that there's the technical competencies that people need to leave with, clearly. But what's even more important for a long-term career trajectory and life trajectory is the inner ability to understand oneself, to work well with others. And my course is the Leading with Mindfulness and Compassion is really speaking to the need for our ability to regulate our own attention, understand our emotions, the emotions of other people, what makes people tick so that we can all work together the most effectively that we possibly can.
0: Tell me why we're doing this now. So what's the genesis of this? And for anybody that's cynical, cynically minded, listening to this, saying this is just a fad, tell us how this evolved and why you think this has become so important.
1: Well, I think we are unequivocally in a place where we understand through research and I think also practitioners, business leaders that for organizations to run effectively to meet their own goals to retain and attract the top talent, things like culture, things like integrity and candor and compassion are all crucial and these don 't have to stay in the um, in the realm of the aspirational they're actually uh, we know a lot about the methods for cultivating these kinds of skills. So, classes like mine are here because compassion isn't just an abstract. Compassion is something you can get better at, not just as an individual, but as an organization. And if you do, it's actually going to not just make you more humane and more palatable to employees, but it's actually going to give you a competitive advantage.
0: So, go into that. Because, again, with the cynically minded here, we hear the words like compassion, even, frankly, meditation and mindfulness. These are still terms that haven't really fully reached the mainstream from an acceptance standpoint. And I think we all argue that traditionally compassion has never been really one of the, the key focuses of business leadership and cultivating compassion, even empathy. So, what is it that you understand now that we haven't always understood? In other words, why are these not soft? Why is this integral to leadership success?
1: Well, if you are in any number of businesses, I would argue that compassion is integral to, uh, if you're in healthcare, for example, that's part of your mandate. If you are in an industry that has anything to do with providing a service to anybody else or a product, your ability to understand what the needs are for the people who are purchasing what it is that you're creating and selling, that all comes back to the question of like, can you take perspective? Can you have mental flexibility, understand different points of view? And then there's all the internal functioning within an organization. If you want to be the organization that has the most innovation, the best way to get there is have the teams that can work well with one another. And how do you have teams that work well with one another? People need to feel psychologically safe. How do we get there? we need to be able to have empathy and compassion. And we also need to understand what we're saying and doing and expressing that's either supporting that or blocking that.
0: Well, tell us about the students. So in other words, From what I read in your book, it seems like there's a really wide appeal to a class like this. In other words, you've got a huge demand. People can't even get into this class sometimes. So there's, you know, your students are paying upwards of $100,000 a year to get an MBA per year. And where is the interest coming from? What do they know? How are they beating a path to you?
1: Well, first of all, they know that when they are going to interview for their next job, Part of the skill set that they are being measured against includes can they demonstrate self-awareness? Can they demonstrate that they have the ability to work well with others, that they have compassion, that they have the capacity to, through stressful times create an atmosphere where people can do and be their best. So the students that I have in my class are from all kinds of industries. I have a ton from finance, from, you know, traditional consulting backgrounds, people starting new startups of their own, people in the major tech companies, You name it. I've had doctors, lawyers who are dual degree students, people in education. And I think what they're also thinking, and you mentioned how expensive an MBA is. Well, part of the logic on this is do you want to spend your time learning skills and technologies that are going to be obsolete in a few years with that precious time? You have two years for your MBA, you have a limited number of courses you're going to take. And frankly, You know, I think there's a lot of skepticism in students that the kinds of modeling and frameworks that applied in the past are going to continue to be relevant, that the thinking is updated so quickly now about what technical competencies are, that they know they've got to continue to learn in the field, in their job. So then the question becomes, what's the best use of time? while you're in school. And some of that might be technical competency, but increasingly I'm seeing the students recognizing what they most want is the ability to really be a capital L leader and be someone who can inspire and bring out the best in others. And that's what brings them in my class and along with their desire to live meaningful healthy lives. And they know they've been at work before. And, you know, they're not typically straight out of undergrad. So they understand the demands of the workplace. They know when they leave their MBA, they're going to be working harder than ever before for the next few years. So the way to finding contentment isn't going to be through having more vacation. That's not going to happen. It's going to come from their mindset or from nowhere.
0: So this is warmed my heart, honestly, to hear that this is that kind of a trend. I'm wondering if you think with a sample of the students that you've been teaching over the years at Stanford, if a common denominator that they share is a desire to reinvent how we've led and managed people in the workplace, do they see themselves a, a certain place in history and say, the way we've been doing this isn't working and we've got to embrace new ways and new, new ways of thinking?
1: Absolutely. When I'm working with students, I mean, they're all involved in job searches. What If they're first years, they're involved for looking for their internship. If they're second year, they're looking for their job after they finish their program. Or if they're mid-career, they just have a one-year curriculum. So they're you know not out of the workforce for very long and a lot of the conversations we have come back to how do you recognize a purpose a purposeful organization how do you really know when you're comparing these students have choices right so comparing different organizations which is going to be the better fit for them where they're going to really be able to grow and i think that they're increasingly looking to questions like culture and the organization's commitment to their development And I encourage them to do that. I think it's really important. And not only do I encourage them to do that, when we have guest speakers, you know, CEOs from various companies like Jeff Weiner just came in winter quarter and we had a great conversation with him, the CEO of LinkedIn. You know, he talked a lot about the day to day importance of compassion at LinkedIn. And then we dug into the challenges of that, of course, as well. But I think it's very front of mind for these students.
0: Well, it's fascinating because you even mentioned these statistics in your book, and they're very well known in terms of engagement, not just in America, but across the world. In fact, they're ridiculously low in America, and they're absurdly low outside of the United States. And I've been tracking this for quite some time, written extensively about it, have had a deep connection with Gallup, and have seen what trends are emerging, and they're not getting any better. And so I'm wondering where the connection is between The education that you're giving these students, these are obviously, you know, Stanford's ranked in the top three, four best business schools in the country. So you've got elite people that are going through your program. Are they only going to elite companies or do you anticipate that more companies other than the enlightened ones like LinkedIn are going to start embracing people with their knowledge and expertise. In other words, come into our company and change the culture, change how we lead, bring what you're learning here and help us evolve into a new understanding of leadership. Where is this going to end? Where is it going to go?
1: You know, I should say, first of all, I don't really believe that there's enlightened organizations. I think they're organizations that are working with these questions and doing their best and they have strengths and blind spots and, you know, the rest of it. So I'm not one who's going to like, you know, say, here's the company who's got this through and through. But I think there's companies who are working in very intentional ways on some of these questions. I think... Part of the engagement question is really comes back to two pieces, purpose, clarity and purpose. What am I doing here? What is this organization doing? How does the purpose of the organization overlap with my purpose at this moment in time and where I want to be headed? And for my students, I think that increasingly understanding that that's an important, important and and crucial conversation to have. And then I think the other piece that's really important is attention and the ability for people in this moment where we're so overwhelmed with information and technology and, you know, meetings that could fill our days and we have no time to actually do the work that we need to do. People feel competing demands causes a lot of stress. So I think returning to purpose, having mindfulness in the service of the ability to more precisely hone attention is a key competency. And and I'm not the only person saying this, the idea of the attention economy is something that a lot of people are talking about now. So yeah, I think that these skills are ones that my students see that they want to do everything they can from their own side to be able to be really clear about what's important. And so they can focus on that and be creative and, you know, create a positive work environment for themselves and others. And I think that they understand that this will make them healthier and more effective over time. So that's what they're for many of them, their goals are. And a lot of them know they're going to need to make changes in the industries they're going back to because a lot of these industries are not known for being strong in competencies like mindfulness and compassion.
0: (laughs) Thank you. I mean, that really nails the big question here. And I think anybody listening to this has to be totally excited. And we want these people to get their degrees and get out there and start changing things. Before we move on, I'd love to know if there's any part of the syllabus Anything that you're teaching, anything that you're reading that you think you might want to recommend to anyone in our audience who's interested in mindfulness? I have some questions about that. But before we go on to those, I just thought, is there anything in, in what you're teaching that you know, people listening in could pick up on their own and sort of get a taste of what you're teaching in your class?
1: The most effective way to get a sense of what I'm teaching my class is the book that I wrote that came out this spring, How We Work, Live Your Purpose, Reclaim Your Sanity and Embrace the Daily Grind is really a distillation of the key principles of this course. So if you want to get more of a line of sight into my thinking and pedagogy and the skills that I'm training in, that's the most clear, obvious place to see that. And then in the book, I refer to tons of different research in each of these spaces So within mindfulness. I do a lot with attention regulation and distraction and emotion regulation and interpersonal mindfulness. And how do you bring it in? And the other thing that I'd say is I in the course I offer and I train in meditation, but it's one of many skills. I'm really focused on the mindset and that's consistent with the book, because I think that we need to set realistic benchmarks around how people can engage with this content. And it's unequivocally clear that meditation is one of the best ways to improve these kinds of skills like attention. But there's a lot of other things that we can do that are supportive that are both environmental and internally based.
0: Great. Great. I recently read Robert Wright's best-selling book. It's called Why Buddhism is True. And when I got done reading it, I thought he should have called it How the Brain Works because he spends so much time, a really magnificent job of explaining how thoughts pop into our head from different competing, what he called modules lodged in our brains. And his key point is that the voice that we all hear in our heads that raises fears and doubts and even sabotages us isn't really us most of the time and I thought you're sort of the perfect person to expound on this and tell us how the mind works to undermine us at times and why meditation is really such a great remedy for this.
1: Well, I think one of the key things that we learn from mindfulness and, you know, if we want to think of mindfulness as a competency, like, let's call it like the analog could be fitness. I want to be fit. So there's different ways of getting there, but all of them are going to involve exercise. If we want to be mindful, we need to train our ability to understand how the thoughts and emotions that we're experiencing happen so that we know where to put our attention. So... Mindfulness as a skill is based on our ability to recognize what we're thinking and what we're feeling and the sensations we're having, what's going on in our experience. And a lot of what happens is we have thoughts and the habit is that we believe those thoughts, whether they're about ourselves or about other people or about a situation So part of what is so interesting when we start training in being more mindful is that we can recognize patterns of thought that they're tied to old things like, you know, sometimes internalizing a family member's criticism when we were a child or they're old news, but they're on a playback loop in our Thoughts And they set the tone for how we experience ourselves in the world. So mindfulness is a way to train to recognize that the thought is just a thought. It doesn't have to carry this kind of weight. And then we can make choices about how we respond to it. And it's a similar process with emotions. We're having emotions all the time. If we don't know what our emotions are, we're at much greater risk to be reactive when we're upregulated or experiencing a strong emotion. If we have the ability to be mindful and we can know, have what we call metacognition or meta-awareness, being aware of what we are experiencing, then we have this opportunity, this space between emotion and reaction or thought and reaction. So the way that meditation fits in here is that meditation is one of the most efficient ways to build this competency. There's nothing woo or magical about meditation, other than it is literally the training. Like if I want to strengthen my biceps, there's a bunch of different ways I could do it, but they're all going to involve moving my body and, and accessing this particular muscle group. Similarly, we can learn to see what we're thinking, feeling, and so on by using this format of meditation, but it's not the end all. Then we need to actually, the important work comes, which means applying it in our lives, in our work, in our relationships.
0: I'm really glad I asked you because that was really insightful and articulate. And I'm wondering if, you know, with your students, do you recommend a certain amount of time for meditation every day? Is it more than once a day? Are there circumstances where you say this would be a good opportunity for you to insert it? Any recommendations there?
1: So, for people who are trying to get a meditation practice started, I think the analogy of getting an exercise habit or any behavior change thing we want to do, we have to do a realistic assessment of where we are and what our lives are like and start injecting small changes, right? So, I think the key is like, you know, if my goal is to run a marathon a year from now, but I haven't run in five years. I'm going to be starting from a different place than someone else. But what we all have in common is we need to be moving and we need to find a way of approaching the movement that I won't just do it one day, but that it builds on itself over time. So I start them at five, 10 minutes a day. I try to get them to see that they really do have 15 minutes and that there's no logical, reasonable argument someone can make that they don't have 15 minutes in their day, because we all do, it's just a choice of where we put the time. I can see if, if I was, the baseline was you need 45 minutes or an hour, that's a lot harder to find. But if you can say that to get this habit kicked off, I'm going to start with 10 minutes a day, then the question just becomes like, where do you insert it? Where can you tie it to something else you're already doing in your morning ritual? Where does it fit in with your tea or your coffee or... You know, a lot of my students are hardcore athletes and they have intense exercise regimens. So, you know, can you do that right after you work out or in your evening routine, but putting it in consistently and taking an experimental attitude towards like what works and how can I build on my success and go further?
0: Fantastic. You mentioned that Google, this is in your book, that Google asked you to come in and help them better incorporate mindfulness practices in their workforce. And they were one of the first ones to ever introduce any mindfulness training in a corporation. Tell us how this ended up happening and what was the outcome of your work? I mean, it looks like they're trying to do advanced work in mindfulness. Is that what's happening?
1: So before I um, came back out to Stanford, while I was still in grad school, We were collaborating the Compassion Center with Google, and one of the earliest pilots of the Compassion Cultivation Training Program um, happened at Google. And we had a lot of overlap in the team that Meng worked with uh, in developing Search Inside Yourself. A lot of the same researchers were involved with the Compassion Cultivation Training Program, which is interesting. So... A couple years ago, I started having conversations with folks at Google who were part of the Search Inside Yourself. They were teachers of Search Inside Yourself. They were interested in compassion, in emotional intelligence in the workplace. But it was an interesting starting point because the first conversation I had with this team started with kind of the head of the team, the most senior engineer who turned to doing a lot more of this work the last few years. He was basically like, classes aren't going to make it. And he put it more colorfully than that. I'm not sure how you feel about expletives on your uh, podcast, but he basically (laughs) said- If you think it'll enhance
0: the podcast, (laughs) go ahead.
1: (laughs) He said, ask classes. And it's not because classes don't work. The problem he was starting with was, Classes weren't even going to scale within Google, in part because you could only get so many people through them in an amount of time, in part because they're only attractive to a certain amount of people. So they're they're popular, but, like, Google's huge. And his question was, what would it mean to take the compassion moonshot and do something much bigger than classes? So those were the conversations we had around, like, What, you know, Google is very proud of some of the behavior change interventions they've done around nutrition and like, you know, putting healthy foods in healthy portions in very accessible places and then making it more challenging to access the less healthy options. You know, so we were having discussions like that. Like, what does it mean to, in the physical environment, create more compassion in more social connection and more mindfulness. And yeah, it's been a really interesting. Another person I've been talking about this with, George Salah, came into my class and he was an early Googler and for many years was the head of sustainability and which is a huge program at Google, you know, because they're doing moonshots and the construction, healthy materials landscape, but also all the employee well-being programs. So he came in and we had a lot of, discussion around what does it mean to create environments and cultures that are compassionate. So those are some of the conversations I've been having with them and some of the experiments that they are continuing to work on. I've been less involved over the last few years, but at the time I was writing the book, I was still pretty engaged with what does this look like? What does it mean? How do we know when we get there? What's the big goal
0: You know, I've been to Google, and I've met Meng. And one of the things that we talked about is something that you mentioned, which is this issue of scalability, you know, the ability to get everybody through it. And so there was always a huge demand, particularly because he was teaching it, and people wanted to be a part of that. Now there's train the trainers, there's other people launching this, but at the same time, they still can't get everybody through it. But they still have the ambition of doing this, and making it broader. Now I'm wondering if you think that other companies—I mean, Google has always been on the cutting edge for these kinds of programs—is mainstream business looking at these examples and saying we've got to get on board with this?
1: Well, it's interesting. I mean, Google is definitely at the cutting edge with this, but they also have you know a lot of kind of unique opportunities and challenges. I mean, some of the discussions I've had over the years with people and their people ops are really trying to get like very basic common, I'll use the word decency enacted. And we've seen a lot about this in the press and issues around diversity and just basic empathy. This is back to why I'm really not comfortable presenting any organization as like the ideal, especially when we know that, you know, there's a lot of issues happening. I think it's the same logical error that happens when people get overly excited about meditation and see it as a silver bullet or a class as a silver bullet. What we need to do is both have the skills and competencies for people to be better with the soft skills and have the communications training and have more mindfulness. But we also need cultures that make sense, that are legislating, if you will, that people have to treat each other with respect. And I think, unfortunately, we can't presume any of that. If you look at a number of the tech companies that have had a lot of scrutiny over the last year, I mean, this is an ongoing problem, that people who are the elite in terms of building incredible products that move our world forward are not necessarily good at having kind of basic decency to treating people from a different race or sex with the respect that they deserve. So I think, you know, is one class going to change that? I don't think so. And I'm not particularly interested in working with an organization at this point. When I hear some, an organization wants to look at questions like, how do we become more compassionate? There's the individual skills level. But if I don't see that they're also looking to understand what's not working and what's leading to toxicity and stress at the organizational cultural level, then I don't think that it works. So these need to come hand in hand. And I think that's the case for any industry that you need to be willing to do both of those. Because otherwise we end up in a situation where we're like teaching people to be more resilient in untenable situations. That's not a project I'm interested in. I want to create a better world, a more ethical, compassionate world that then has to, there's structural issues that need to be engaged as well.
0: Well, I guess that's really where I was going with is just your sense of whether or not companies are looking at this holistically and saying, you know, this is a journey, right? As you're suggesting, no one's ever going to get it perfect. Business is always business. It's always going to be very difficult. But in your sense, are more companies looking at The kinds of training that you're doing, the kinds of education really is what you're giving your students. Are they looking at that and saying, this is going to be important in our organization? Or do you think more companies are looking at this and saying that might be a useful program, sort of check the box kind of thing, say we're doing something? So where's the sincerity level?
1: Yeah, I think it's all over the map. I just wrote a case for the Stanford-Harvard database that should be out anytime now, looking at mindfulness in organizations and what are the programs, what are the metrics they're using, what is the training of the people who are teaching these programs, what are the goals of the organization in bringing them in, how are they evaluating them. And I I feel as though it's really... um, it's all over the map. And sometimes it's, you know, these kinds of courses are perceived to be like a perk, like a, you know, a yoga class or exactly. a, which is fine. I mean, I'm all for like there being perks, but that to me isn't getting to the root. And and I think there are some very sophisticated earnest organizations that really want to look at both the systemic levels as well as having trainings. And really it's the trainings for training sake doesn't make sense. It's like the trainings in the service of becoming better teams and organizations. So I don't know. I, I mean, where I see the landscape right now, it depends on the day. Some days I'm really optimistic. Some days I'm fairly depressed about it because, I think there's a lot of problems in how programs are being implemented. I think the quality is all over the place. I think there's a lot of places where kind of there's blind spots. But I think the good news is there's efforts in so many different industries to do this work. And I think a lot of them are earnest and they may be imperfect. But there's also, you know, I don't see how much impact can really happen in some of the kinds of situations where it's like, you know, a senior VP of whatever decides now they're a meditation teacher. And, you know, there's all sorts of kind of conflicts of interest for and pressures on employees to participate in the lack of awareness and the people who are pressuring them. Like, I think there's some of that happening in organizations. And then there's organizations where it's being done really thoughtfully. And that was consistent with what, you know, I saw in writing this case and looking into a few different industries and a few different corporations like LinkedIn and Aetna, among others.
0: One of the things that you wrote in your book, you said that one wonders if the declining productivity engagement numbers point to a need for a major workplace leadership Mm -hmm. disruption. If you were, you know, queen for a day, what would that disruption look like? What do we need to disrupt and how would you, what would you bring in that's new?
1: Yeah, I think some of my students are really on that page and that's part of where I feel heartened that, you know, they just aren't convinced that the types of metrics that are used in performance reviews and the types of the ways that organizations are being framed are fundamentally problematic to some of the students that I'm working with. So I think if I was queen for a day, what would I do? It's a good question. I think that it's really important that leadership have diversity of perspectives. I think that you know, really bringing people into the conversation who have experienced the shadow sides of organizations and really valuing what they have to say, not just like sort of checking the box of having heard them and covering one's own butt, but like very literally um, Mm -hmm. trying to learn from them and improve the situation. I see sometimes in in healthcare, I think there's a really earnest desire and conversations I'm having with physician leaders, you know, they went into the work because they want to heal and make people healthier and be helpful, and they're beaten down by organizational structures. So I think, you know, in that context, it's hard to speak across industries, like for healthcare specifically. You know, I would like to see the providers really taken quite seriously about what are all the issues that they see with how healthcare is being provided that are at cross purposes with the goal of making people healthier and really having those issues surface and not just swept away because of financial considerations prematurely. Like maybe there are some a lot more creative solutions that are possible if you have the right people who are actually invited to share their perspective.
0: I'm just excited that you're inspiring and Stanford and other graduate schools are inspiring this motivation, you know, and that students, I mean, these are still young people. These are people that probably aren't even in their thirties yet for the most part. And, have this wide view of the potential of what could we possibly create if we, you know, sort of broke down some of the structures you're describing and create an environment where people could actually do the work that makes them thrive and really go back to healing people and not having the bureaucracies and the oppressiveness and all the things that come with work that we've kind of created unwittingly that Interfere with people's effectiveness. And so I'm just inspired by this. I'm inspired by the class that you're teaching and just the idea that they're going to be going into, in, you know, just think back. It wasn't that long ago that Stanford and Wharton and Harvard were teaching people how to manipulate a balance sheet and an income statement, and people weren't really considered in the equation. And so you're doing this kind of work, even if you're not doing it well, you're starting, you know, this is sort of the early stages of this. I want to ask you a question. One of the things that you talked about is at Yale, where everybody is taking a class on purpose. So I'm just wondering if you have optics into that, whether the class teaches students to determine their purpose, or if it's also giving them the insight to identify how to help people that work for them identify theirs.
1: Yeah. Before I transition to the Yale thing, I mean, I think the jury's out on whether You know, I don't feel like I'm doing it badly or the students are doing it badly. I think it's going to be a long game. And these are going to be as these students feel empowered to be authentic and with integrity and really have this as a goal. I agree with you. I feel inspired that they're going to be out there doing this. And these are the people, you know, I tell them this sometimes, I'm like, you are going to be running the corporations when my seven, five and four year old enter the workforce. And I hope it's going to be a really different world. And there'll be a lot of trial and error along the way. But if you care about creating more human work Places, If you care about having stewardship of the environment and human rights, and these are values that you don't think need to be thrown away in the service of your own success. If you believe there's a way to hold both of those, I have so much more confidence in the way forward. I really do.
0: Not to ring the plug bell here, but the intention of this podcast is to inspire people to say, I don't have to wait for my organization to change. I don't have to wait for these Stanford MBA students to excel in their careers and be promoted into the C suite before I embrace this. So, you know, the people that we're bringing on, including you, Leah, are bringing insight that. I think is uncommon and untraditional in many ways, but is so compelling that it inspires people to say, you know what, I can lead in a way that is much more aligned to my values, much more aligned to the way that I've always wanted to be led myself and believe drives greater effectiveness. And so when they hear what you're teaching, I think it gives people greater permission to step out and say, I'm going to have that courage to do this. So even if none of this is done masterfully yet, just the fact that people are talking about this and willingness to take the first steps here is a huge leap. Yeah, I think
1: you know I absolutely agree with that, and I agree that we don't have to be the CEO or at the top layer or even close in the org chart to have major influence. And some of the most interesting disruptions happen, you know, on teams and in departments where people just take these values and start enacting them. And uh, yeah, a lot can be done that way for sure.
0: All right. You want to answer the question on sure. you? <laughs> I,
1: I mean, I can, to the best of my ability, um, You know, what I know of Dr. Rusnetsky's work, and she's the one who's been teaching this course to MBA students, and she's a researcher whose expertise is in purpose, among other things. She definitely, you know, she has a few frameworks that are extremely useful to get at what are the operative mindsets that we have about our work. Do we see it as a job, a means to get a paycheck? Do we see it as a career, a stepping stone for the future? Do we see it as a calling, which is really an expression of our values in a way to be purposeful through our work? But she also has this really great uh, purpose tool that is useful both from the perspective of, for me as an individual, trying to grow my purpose, but also it can be used as a management tool that she's developed and used in research in in companies that supports people in the process of clarifying their purpose and aligning their job and what they're spending their time on more closely to their purpose over time in a realistic way. So I think that her work is really, is really powerful and this comes into the class I teach in a lot of ways around, you know, what does it mean to when you're supervising someone to invest in understanding what really drives their interest in the work and you know are there some pieces of the the organizational mission that they're not as directly involved with that they would want to be what are the opportunities you can create for them you know understanding that there's still a core role that they need to fill but over time even you know giving access to growth in areas that are purposeful goes a really long way towards developing the person. And also from the organization's perspective, it makes good sense because you're going to retain that person because they see you're committed to them. They see that you're trying to develop them. They see that you're trying to help their career unfold in a way that is meaningful to them. So it, you know, in a time when engagement is low and retention is a problem, You know, the question I ask back from skeptics who's like, oh, yeah, you know, you're there for a paycheck. It's not it's not the organization's problem to make you feel good about the work you're doing. You get paid. Well, it is your problem if you want to keep your talent and if you understand the cost of turnover, uh, which are immense and, you know, contagious and what all. So, yeah, I think that it works in a lot of different directions, this purpose.
0: And also maximizing their productivity, because if people are matched up to roles where they feel their purposes aligned, they're going to commit themselves deeply, much more deeply. Right. Absolutely. That's really the essence of this. Absolutely.
1: Right. I mean, there's a fundamental if we're interested in something that we care about, that we have a lot more to give. And if we're on the fence, you know, if we're feeling a little bit sick, if we care not one bit about the role, we take a sick day. I mean, not that I'm advocating people go in sick, but you know what I mean, that there's investment that we make. There's choices around absenteeism. There's implications for retention. And then also, you know, the increasing concern that people are talking about is presenteeism, that people are there physically, but they're not mentally there. They're cyber loafing, they're sort of unproductive, disengaged. So all of this purpose comes directly on to that point.
0: Totally agree. In my vernacular, you know, when you have your heart in your work, you make very different choices about how you commit yourself or don't commit yourself at work. And so one thing that really, I think is obvious to everyone listening to this is why you would have a different kind of educational background than most professors at a business school. But the fact that you have a PhD in theology makes me wonder whether I'll just ask it directly. Do you think that spirituality is going to have an impact on business? Is it already? Is it part of the future here?
1: Well, my doctorate's in theology and education and the education piece is a little bit less untraditional. I think that we need to understand that People, It goes along with the whole person vision of education, and, and I think this is going to be a key piece to improving engagement levels, that we are whole people, organizations that can show that they understand that, not just whole people, that we have multiple roles, and that meaning matters. And there's a lot I write about in my book around the biology of purpose, which is surprising to people, but we we are healthier when we have a strong sense of purpose. So, you know, there's a lot of interesting overlap between matters of spirituality, if you will, and meaning, and what we need to be healthy and well. So, you know, my own background in looking at questions of like, meditation and tools that come out of buddhist traditions and how they can be applied and taught in other contexts is definitely untraditional non-traditional but um i think that this movement towards an integrated whole self is much more widely recognized now
0: fantastic Okay, Leah, we have a ritual on the podcast where we ask our guests a series of rapid fire questions, and we call it the heartbeat round. And the goal is to get a glimpse into who each guest is as a person, as a human being, and to elicit even more useful insights our audience can take away from the podcast. So right now, I'm going to ask you a few questions in a row, and I'd like you to answer each one in a heartbeat. You ready to go? hmm Okay. The one book that profoundly changed your life?
1: One of these books would be The Writing Life by Annie Dillard.
0: Leader of any era or discipline you most admire?
1: I admire political leaders who stand up on behalf of others with great courage. Nelson Mandela, Desmond Tutu, Aung San Suu Kyi.
0: Newspaper or magazine you never miss reading?
1: New York Times. I'm a Jersey girl.
0: What exit? (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I grew up in New York. That's the standard response to somebody from New Jersey. So sorry. Um, The quality you admire most in other people. Integrity. The place you go when you need to clear your mind.
1: More than a place, it's a practice and of mindfulness.
0: A leader of today that you believe best represents the leader of the future.
1: Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez.
0: Tell us about her
1: the upset in the election in New York, I think that she's just standing up and speaking truth and uh, truth about her experience that's actually representative of many people's experience. And I think that we're going to see more of these kinds of high integrity, courageous leaders stepping up. I'm very inspired.
0: The strongest emotion you feel when you were in the presence of the Dalai Lama? Clarity. Word that represents the best synonym for heart. Mind. Skill improvement you're working on right now.
1: Candor, balanced with compassion.
0: Quote that best summarizes your life philosophy.
1: Contentment is the greatest wealth. Milarepa, who's a Tibetan master.
0: And one uncommon way leaders can positively impact the motivation and engagement of their employees. Be authentic. Thank you. Those were wonderful. I love the heartbeat round and and your answers are very consistent and yet very unique. And I just love going through them. So thank you. We're at the end here. And I honestly, Leo, I never know where the conversation of these podcasts is going to take us. And so I purposely leave their endings open in hopes that guests like you will close things out by punctuating an important point or sharing an insight that hasn't yet surfaced. So As you look to the future of leadership education, just broadly, what final piece of advice do you have for our audience? And what might we all be wise to learn and cultivate going forward in order to become even more effective managers and leaders?
1: I think the thing I would sum up with is let's all commit to ourselves, to one another, to take next steps, to take an action that maybe small, but is aligned in the direction we want to see our lives and the world moving to take these small risks and support one another in doing them, and to reflect on what we learned, how it went, and how we can continue. So this cycle of small, purposeful steps that lead up to great change.
0: Thank you so much, Leah chatting with you has been wonderful. Congratulations on your great work. And thank you for coming on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Mark. I've really enjoyed this conversation.
0: Thank you. I did as well. As a quick reminder before we go, I'd love to hear your feedback on this podcast and how we can make it even better and better for you. You can find me on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn on Mark C. Crowley. And the easiest way to reach me for all of these, but also for my email is markccrowley.com. And please also keep in mind if you're planning a meeting and seeking a leadership speaker. I've spoken to many organizations in all industries around the world and would love to bring my knowledge to yours. And finally, thanks to my producer and sound engineer, Eric Oz, and my site manager, Randy Yant, it's amazing how much work goes into one podcast, and these guys make it look easy. And finally, as always, never forget, when you lead from the heart, your people will follow. Until next time, this is Mark C. Crowley, signing off.